Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name is John Schaefer and I'm here today with Ian Jensen-Humphreys, co-manager of the Quilter Investors Carillium range. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So since taking over the active range recently, what decisions have you made to improve performance and stem outflows? So, as you know, we, we, we took over the active range towards the end of last year. Uh, Sasha and I had previously been and continue to manage the Carillium blend range as well. So it's fair to say the portfolios we, were in, we inherited were not in quite the shape that we would have had them in had we started with a blank piece of paper. So we used our investment process and the way we think about investing to help inform our decision rules when we were making changes to the portfolio. So typically, the way Sasha and I work is we think about markets and investing from a top-down perspective. So we start with how much risk do we want to take in the portfolios? So that could be an overweight to equities or bonds. Then we think about where to take the risk. So that could be UK or US equities. It could be high-yield bonds or government bonds. And then we think about how to take the risk. So what managers do we want to own to implement those positions? So, so how much, where, and how? And we use that exact same process thinking about the Carillium Active portfolios. So the first thing we thought about was how much risk do we want in the portfolios? Let's drill down into those active range portfolios. Why do you think they underperformed their benchmarks last year? And maybe more specifically, what would you have done differently? So when I look at the Carillium Active portfolios, and we, we, you know, we, we had a, a pretty thorough review of them upon taking responsibility for them, there were three aspects that we thought contributed to the underperformance last year. Um, the first one related to the exposure to high yield or risky bonds within the portfolio. That was prevalent at the lower risk profile, so conservative and balanced. They had a lot of exposure to high yield bonds, which didn't do too well. The second and third aspects related to the style exposure of the equity allocations. Now, the first aspect of this was the size tilt to the portfolios. You know, when we invest in, in stocks and shares, we can invest in either larger companies or small and medium-sized companies. Now, through time, there's been a lot of academic research that suggests small and medium-sized companies do tend to outperform, on average, in the long run. And Carillium Active was tilted more towards those small and medium-sized companies. However, last year that didn't really work at all, and it was those larger companies that did tend to outperform. So that was the second aspect. The third aspect related to the style of investing. Now, broadly speaking, you can invest in, in two main styles. You can either be a growth-style investor or a value-style investor. So growth, obviously, you don't really focus so much on the price you're paying today for the company, you're looking at those potential future earnings and, and hopefully for high growth. Value, you focus less on future earnings and more about what you pay today. Carillion was tilted more towards growth companies 
unfortunately, last year was a tough time for growth companies. And, and the value style of investing mm. tended to do a bit better. So your energy companies, your banks tended to outperform. So, so the, the high yield, the smaller mid cap, and the growth exposure. And does that mean you're looking to tilt more towards a value bias at the moment? So I don't think we'll end up with a full value tilt, but we're looking to have a slightly more balanced tilt in the portfolio. Mm. So, so what Sasha and I had in our prior portfolios last year was more of a balance between growth and value, and we'd be looking to move closer towards that as we work through the Krillium Active range. I mean, is it a bit late to be transitioning over to more value in your portfolio? Has the horse already bolted with it? Is it, is it better to just stick with growth at this point? So I think there is certainly room for value to outperform further. You know, we had built up a real imbalance over the past 10 years or so of growth style investing consistently outperforming value. And absolutely, that started to reverse last year, but it could go further. Now, I should state as well, we wouldn't be making a full shift towards value. What we want to try and do is have a, just a bit more balance and a bit more diversification in the portfolios. I mean, clearly you're, you're, you're um, managing the, the blended range, which sort of combines active and passive at the mm. moment. Um, what elements of that are you thinking of taking over to the active range now? So we'll certainly look to keep the same process for both portfolios. So if we, if we take a step back and look at the two ranges, they both operate within the same um, volatility band, so they're risk targeted to the same levels. They both have the same comparators, so we're benchmarked against this, the same um, indices. We have the same long-term in-house strategic asset allocation, and we have the same managers. So broadly speaking, they should be pointing in the same direction the vast majority of the time. What we do is we take that asset allocation, that strategic asset allocation, and we try and make active decisions on top, either by tilting the portfolio mm. tactically and by adding best-in-breed managers to outperform. For Carillion Blend, you get all of the tactical tilts to the portfolios and some of the manager selection. With Carillion Active, you get the same tactical tilts, but you get the full manager selection benefit. In addition, you get the exposure to investment trusts that we have in Carillion Active, but we don't have in Carillion Blend. And are there particular funds um, that you are looking to move over from the blend to the active range? Yes, there are. There, there are some funds that we, you know, we, we've held for a, a reasonable period of time in Carillion Blend. We like the managers, we like the strategy, and yes, we are looking to introduce those in, into the Carillion Active range as and well. Could you be specific about which ones they are? Absolutely. So a, a good example would be the Alliance Bernstein International Healthcare Fund. So to give you a bit of context, uh, one of the tactical tilts that Sasha and I have been expressing in the Carillion Blend portfolios for nearly two years now is a overweight targeted on the healthcare sector. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, we think there's a really good runway for excess returns for that sector as a result of you know, aging demographics, demographics in, in, wealthy, in wealthy countries because Frankly, old people get ill more frequently, they spend more on healthcare. An emerging middle class, particularly in China and India, generally as you earn more money, you move into the middle class, not only do you spend more money on healthcare, you spend more proportionally on healthcare as a proportion of your earnings. 
because mm. you start spending money on dietary products, you start spending money on braces for your kids, health insurance, gym membership, and so on and so forth. Also, what the COVID pandemic showed us was that security of your supply line was probably more important than the cost of your supply line. And that opens up possibility for people to make good money in the long run. So we like healthcare. It also sits very well as a defensive sector in the portfolio. And we really like Alliance Bernstein as a manager who gives us the right flavor of healthcare in the portfolios. So, I mean, obviously, healthcare did pretty well over the pandemic, um, although maybe not shooting the lights out in, in comparison to some other, uh, other sectors. Um, but some of the sort of the pharmaceutical majors haven't done amazingly well recently. You saw Pfizer recently sort of missing its <laughs> earnings per share expectations. D does that concern you? So, in all honesty, no. Um, we think that that runway for growth is multi-year. You know, the, the, the demographic advantages that we think really works well for healthcare, they're not going away anytime mm. soon. So you're absolutely right, it had a good pandemic. So healthcare outperformed global equities by about 15% through to November of last year, from January to November. So we actually trimmed the position a little bit then. Um, it sold off a bit this year, it's been left behind as a defensive sector, as some of the more growthy sectors have done well. Um, frankly, if it sells off anymore, we'd be looking to add to the position. Mm. So is healthcare value or growth? You're, you're saying words defensive and growth in the same sentence there. No, that, that, that's, a, that's a good point. It is somewhat growth oriented, but we think of it as, as, as quality or defensive growth. So, so to, to try and explain that nuance Sounds for like you, an oxymoron to me. I would say, a tech company that is making very little in earnings now, but has the potential to really grow and become a dominant company or a dominant sector in the future, that's aggressive growth. Yeah. Um, Defensive growth is something like healthcare, where we do think there are above average growth possibilities, but the shape of that growth is not particularly cyclical or sensitive to the economy. Yeah. People will still get ill, whether we're in a, a boom or a bust environment. So, so we have that growth aspect, but it is quite stable, which is why we call it defensive as well. I wanted to drill down um, into the active range. The, the three largest portfolios are the balanced dynamic and the, and the moderate portfolios. Perhaps you could explain the core differences between those three. Certainly. So the names of those portfolios reflect the amount of risk we're looking to take within the portfolios. So. We start with our conservative portfolios, which are the, the most risk averse, going up through balanced, moderate, dynamic, and then adventurous. Now, broadly speaking, the key differences there are the size of the equity allocation and the size of the bond allocation. As we move up the risk profiles, we tend to anchor on having more equities in the portfolio and fewer bonds in the portfolio. However, within the equity positions, we're looking to express the same views up and down that risk profile. So if we like a manager and we want to introduce it into the portfolios, we want to introduce that manager into all the portfolios. But if it's an equity manager, we will own more of that manager in adventurous than we would do in, say, balanced or conservative. Um, let's draw down a bit on fixed income. Where do you sit on duration exposure? So we are a little bit negative on bonds at the moment we'd like to be slightly underweight duration in the portfolio. So taking less interest rate risk than a neutral position would suggest. Now, the reason 
we want to do that is we simply do not think that the market predictions for interest rates are appropriate at the moment. If, if you look at what is implied by market pricing, participants are assuming that the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, not only will they stop raising rates by the middle of the year, but they will start cutting interest rates by the end of the year, probably in response to a perceived um, lack of growth recession. We think those central banks are anchored on the inflation level. We think inflation, although it has peaked probably, will still remain above target at year end, and we don't think those central banks will be able or will feel able to cut rates. And what's factoring into that? Things like the, the job sur US job survey from yesterday? I mean, that, that survey is yet another data point that confirms the strength of the US job market. We're still in a world where job openings are much higher than job seekers. In America, broadly speaking, if you want a job, you can get a job. If you look at wage growth in the US, it is resilient. In fact, it's been actually accelerating. You know, it's up at 6%, more or less, on a year-on-year -year basis. You know, that's now higher than, than core inflation. So while you know, we're absolutely cognizant of the cost of living crisis in the UK, it's not there to nearly the same extent in America. You know, we have a very strong job market. People are feeling rich because they're getting big increases in their wages and they're spending money. That doesn't mm. feel like a big, tough recessionary period to us. And you, you said at the moment you're fairly negative on taking interest rate risk within, within fixed income. Does that mean changing the asset allocation in your more conservative portfolios? So it means we have to be somewhat creative in the way we're taking exposures. So if I think about a conservative investor and, and the way the portfolios would generally be set up, you'd be roughly 25% in equity investments and the remaining 75% in bond investments. Right now, we've only got about 50% in bonds. So we've got that remaining 25% we have invested somewhat in cash and somewhat in alternative strategies as well because we just simply don't think the returns we'll get in the short to medium term from bonds are good enough to warrant having that full exposure right now. Um, and what do the alternatives bucket look like? Is, it, is this absolute return type strategies? Yes, it is. So there are a number of different strategies. So we will look at the more traditional hedge fund strategies. So these are managers who will both buy and sell equities and try to uh, profit from the difference between their returns. We look at managers who operate in the fixed income space, where they'll look at the relative value between different government bonds. Um, we have managers who try and make money out of um, mergers or specific events. We'll have some commodity exposure as well. Um, we'll have some trend following exposure. Mm. So managers who try and profit from both positive and negative trends in markets. So we try and have a, a diversified range of different alternative exposures. Um, drilling down on the bond funds that you do like, um, looking at the active range, you've got the Janice Henderson Strategic Bond and the Allianz Strategic Bonds funds in, in several of the portfolios. Why do they make the cut? So those are positions that we've, we've inherited in the portfolios, um, and we're in the process of reviewing them right now. I think um, we can focus a bit on the, the Allianz Strategic Bond Fund, because that's one we, we had in Carillion Blend as well. So that's sticking. Uh, it is most likely to still be in the portfolios as, as we move forward. Um, now, the manager there, um, Mike Rodella Allianz, um, we think he's a great manager. 
we think he has a slightly contrarian way of thinking about the world that we like, but we also like the way he implements his decisions. He's very focused on what he refers to as asymmetry of investment decisions, such that he tries to find positions whereby if he's wrong, it only costs the portfolio mm. a small amount, but if he's right, the portfolio should gain by a lot. And he really tries to hunt down those, you know, not necessarily particularly common opportunities, but where there is that asymmetry. And that really worked particularly well for him during 2020, where he delivered some absolutely stellar returns. And we think he's a really nice diversifying manager to have in the but portfolio. But not particularly well last year, because his fund was down 17.6% compared to a sector loss of 12.2%. He did, he did slightly underperform last year. But really, when we're thinking about managers, we think about them on the medium to long term. Um, our tactical tilts in the portfolio mm. tend to be slightly shorter term in nature. So that might be a three to 12 month view. But for the managers, if we have a manager and we like their process and we trust them, we want to give them longer to deliver on that process. Um, Mike Riddell's um, view on interest rate risk is, is kind of at odds with yours. He's taken yes. the longest duration exposure in his portfolio since, since I think the fund's inception. What are your thoughts on that? So he's definitely more bearish on the global economy than we would be, and he has set up accordingly. Uh, we don't mind that, to be honest, uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because the horizon on which he's operating is quite different to us. Yeah, he can and will be much more nimble in the way he moves his positions around than we do. Uh, secondly, frankly, having someone who thinks a bit differently and invests a bit differently brings diversification to us. Yeah, one of the things we're always concerned about and always cognizant of is what happens to the portfolio if our views are wrong. As you know, and this, mm. this might be a statement of the obvious, but being a fund manager is very different to being a, a doctor or a dentist. Yeah. If, if you're a doctor, you're expected to get 97% or more of your diagnoses correct. As a fund manager, if you get 60% of them right, you're probably very, very good. You know, we have to realize that we will get things wrong. We have to make sure in the way we build our portfolios that the consequence of getting those things wrong isn't too damaging. So for, I'd almost be more worried if every bond manager thought the same way as us, because then if we were wrong, that would mean they were all wrong at the same time, which would really magnify losses. Mm. And that's something we really want to avoid. So you, you have, your views are slightly at odds with Mike Riddell, but you've also got this Janice Henderson strategic bond fund in, in the portfolio. Um, does that stick? Uh, that's something we're still reviewing. Um, I have to be honest, I, I did not know the managers of that portfolio until three months ago. When we, when we inherited the position, we started looking at them. Um, we, we've had a couple of meetings with the managers so far. They seem very sensible and thoughtful, but I'm still at a point where I'm learning more about the managers, how they make their decisions, and how they might fit into the portfolio. In terms of the, the equity portion, you've got several premium item funds across the portfolio. You've got the US Opportunities, UK Value Opportunities, the, the massive European Opportunities Fund, and the, these funds have had pretty lackluster performance, um, especially over the past year. Why, why do you continue to hold them? So with funds like some of those Mighton funds, it's really important to think about the frame of reference we use when we evaluate them. So if I take Carlos, the manager of the European Opportunities Fund, you know, he makes no bones about the fact that he is a manager who focuses on 
high growing, small and medium sized companies predominantly. So when we're evaluating his process, his portfolio and his performance, we're doing it through the lens of being a mid cap growth manager. So we're comparing him to the mid cap growth benchmarks, not to the large cap European benchmarks. European yep. benchmark. So from our perspective, although last year that, that fund would have underperformed the large cap benchmark, actually when we look at it relative to the small cap growth benchmarks, we're, we're, we're comfortable with how the performance has been delivered. And with that perhaps more of a tilt towards value in the portfolio, I know you said you're, you're having a mixture of, of the two, does that mean you might trim a fund like that? Uh, we'd look at it in the context of all the other growth managers we have in the portfolio. So um, you know, of the managers we have inherited, there are a number of growth managers, a number of whom have a small and medium cap tilt. So we're looking at all of those. And you know, the decisions we have to make, well, if we have, for example, if we have five of them, do we keep all five in a slightly smaller amount? Or do we remove one and keep four in the same amount? So that's something we're working through at the moment. There's a couple of single stock holdings in, in the active range as well. You've got Berkshire Hathaway, um, Pantheon International, and Eurasia. I think that's how you say it. Or yes. The, uh, Pantheon and, and Eurasia being both private equity groups. Um, why are you particularly bullish on these names, or, or are those ones that might be under review? So, so they're all under review. Um, the one name that we've held previously in Carillion Blend has been Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Uh, which is obviously Warren Buffett's investment vehicle. Um, Berkshire's a very interesting company. Um, we own Berkshire because it gives us a good proxy for US large cap value exposure. Now that might sound counterintuitive when their largest position is in Apple, which is a growth company. But if you look at how Berkshire Hathaway, the stock trades, it tends to do well when value investing does well it tends to do badly when growth investing does well. Now, the unfortunate fact is it's quite hard to find good US value managers because frankly, most of them either went out of business or retired in the last 10 years because it was so hard to make money as a value manager. You, know, you can find growth managers 10 a penny, but it's hard to find good value managers in the US. Now, we think we're quite close to being able to add a manager that we've done a lot of research on, but until we are in a position to do so, Owning Berkshire does give us that value exposure. And would you be able to name the, the manager that you're considering adding? Uh, not until we start putting them into the portfolio, unfortunately. That, that's fair enough. Um, looking at the, these two private equity companies, I mean, um, Eurasia it, it, it announced that it was ousting its uh, female CEO this week. Um, is that a concern to you? So it's definitely something we're monitoring. Eurasia, Eurasia is a, it's an interesting company. So historically, it was a... Um, a French holding company. So you, they, they would own strategic stakes in other companies. So not dissimilar to Berkshire in, in concept, if not in scale. Uh, more recently, however, they have now branched out. Instead of just managing their own money, they're now managing third-party money as well. So they are somewhat of a hybrid between a private equity manager and an investment company. Yes. Which, which gives them some quite interesting opportunities. So, so uh, this, are these institutional mandates, essentially? Uh, broadly speaking, yes. The third-party money they're running is, is their private markets portfolios. So yep. they're running private equity funds, and they're now letting 
other external investors join them and they're running private debt funds as well. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a bit more interesting for you coming into the active range, being a, a top-down investor, as, okay. as, as you've already said. But are there any other single stocks that you're particularly eyeing um, for the portfolio over the next year? So, one area we're still keen at looking at in the portfolio is maybe not single stock specifically, but thinking about investment trust exposure. Uh, we do like some of the infrastructure funds. Mm. Um, because we do like the inflation exposure we can get. Now, whilst we might think inflation has peaked and will start to, to glide a bit lower, we think it is important to have some real asset exposure in the portfolios because we know that our investors can, well, sorry, not can, they do care about cost of living. They are exposed to inflation, so it's important that we can try and grow their savings in a real sense as opposed mm. to just a nominal sense. So, so that's something we'll be looking at closely going forward. Um, more broadly in real assets, is, is property attractive now? Obviously, the, the REITs have, have been sort of demolished in terms of share prices over the, the past couple of months. Is it a, a good in? So, so property can be quite a tricky one. Um, we don't really like owning direct property because, well, direct property or property, direct property funds because of the liquidity issues around it. You're having a daily trading fund. But maybe a, a trust, a, a REIT in so, so Direct property, no. REITs, REITs tend to trade more like equities than they do like property. So whilst if you buy a REIT, yes, you're getting indirect property exposure. Quite often, and that comes through the NAV, quite often the share price performance you're getting looks and feels more like equity performance. So that's how we'd have to account for it from a risk perspective. So property can be quite a tricky one to hold sometimes. Ian, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk.